This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your IKEA items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at IKEA-USA.com slash circular. Visit IKEA-USA.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Hello and welcome to this June 2018 episode of Radio Astronomy. I'm Ian Todd, the magazine's staff writer, and I'm joined in the studio today by editor Chris Bramley. Hello. And production editor Dave Golder. Hello. Uh, coming up later in the episode, we'll be talking to astronomer Jerry Gilmore about the latest results from Gaia, which is a, a mission to 3D map the Milky Way. And we'll also be revealing our top stargazing site for this month. Uh, but now we're going to take a look at what we found out while putting together the June edition of the magazine. Dave, you've been looking at Solarium quite a lot uh, this week, I, I, I couldn't help but notice. Yeah, I know. Well, the, the feature certainly did its magic with me. Uh, it's a great feature we got, which is both for people who've never used Solarium before, Solarium being the, uh, the kind of uh, virtual planetarium software, uh, free open source software, which uh, uh, launched in 2001, unbelievably. I couldn't believe it's been around so long, but now everybody's using it. But um, yeah, the feature's great. It's a uh, it's great for beginners. Uh, there's some really in-depth stuff also. If you, if you already know Stellarium, because the stuff on the plugins that you can look at for uh, was really expanding. You know how you can use uh, the software. Um, but uh, I, I was tickled. With the, I mean, I've been using it for a while, but um, I, I didn't, I didn't realise there's a little drop-down menu um, which sort of says Earth. And if you press on that, a long list of other, you know, like not moons, planets, dwarf planets, even meteors and things, um, which you can like set set it to that, and then look at the sky, the night sky from say Mars or from Jupiter. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. And then uh, I spent this morning like uh, going back in time. It really was like having a TARDIS and going and going back to July 1969, um, setting it to the moon. And then, like, going for the moonwalk, that first moonwalk, you know, <laughs> with Neil Armstrong. So you can travel in time and travel in space. Absolutely. Yeah, it, is, it is the TARDIS. But uh, it's great. And um, they've even got... Uh, you can you can change the um, the landscape as well. So if you 
are viewing from Jupiter, they've got a you know a landscape that looks like a Jovian's landscape. It's great. There's so many so many useful kind of plugins on that. One of the things I I thought was really good was that you could get um, um, different views through different combinations of equipment and eyepieces or cameras. So mm. if you've got say like you know a Canon DSLR hooked up to a um, a Skywatcher Newtonian um, telescope, you can plug in the all the the right numbers for that, and it'll tell you what the field of view is going to be, and then it will give you a little overlay, so you can kind of you can see prior to taking the photo what you're going to what your it, photo is going to look like. It is the depth of um, the depth and width of features in that that, that it's software is, is amazing. Yeah. I mean, you you can tell that it's been you know being championed by astronomers because. Like you say, it's all those things that they want mm, are now mm. being built for it. And if mm. there's something new comes up, then you can bet that the you know the software will develop again to encapsulate new technological developments. Yeah, that's right, and it's, it's all free. Yeah, it's, it's also like it's a great thing for um, beginners because quite often on Facebook and Twitter we get kind of people saying, you know, when when can I? When's the best place to see? Or when's the best time to see this particular um, event in the night sky from my location? And if you don't download this, this this Stellarium software, you can enter in your coordinates and the date and time, and you can look up and see what the night sky will look like from yeah. from your point of view. So it's not just for kind of hardcore astronomers. It's kind of um, really good for beginners who are just kind of w- wanting to see what they can see, even with the naked eye. Yeah, well, like, right. well, I'm pretty much beginner, and I'm, I'm I'm addicted to it. It's just like the, the, <laughs> the more the more the more the more you use it, the more you want to use it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, speaking of stars, I suppose our our kind of main feature uh, in the in the issue this um, this month is uh, the strange, strangest stars in the universe. Uh, there are over uh, there are about a hundred billion stars in the Milky Way, um, and so obviously there are examples of stars that kind of challenge what we know about stars and, and how they operate and how they form and evolve and die. Um, and just just like um, uh, ex- exoplanets, um, there are always kind of really strange. Uh, Types of stars, and um, so uh, our news editor Elizabeth Pearson has um, put together a, f- a feature about some of the strangest stars in the universe. Um, so I just I just picked out some, some of my favourites from the feature. Um, what, one of the stars has um, the, uh, uh, forming exoplanets uh, in orbit around it, which have carved this kind of dusty circumstellar disk around the star um, into like a spiral shape, like a galaxy. So if you actually look at the the star face on, it looks a bit like a spiral galaxy, just because of the way the the planets. Um, have, have been orbiting. How confusing! <laughs> You'd think that you know a, a planetary system could be a little bit different to a to a galaxy. Come uh, on! <laughs> uh, one star has the mass of the sun crammed into a space about a third the diameter of Earth, um, and apparently this this star's carbon core has actually crystallized to create a diamond that is ten billion trillion trillion carats. Oh, man. <laughs> I can't help thinking of that there's some kind of um, race of intelligent beings chipping away at it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I got a sci-fi heist movie in my yes, head now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stealing yeah. the biggest diamond in the, yeah, the universe. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, my, my third and final pick from the feature is um, a, a supernova, which is, as most people probably know is, a, is an exploded star. Um, and this one was spotted brightening in the sky and then fading away, which is normal enough, but then actually rising in brightness again. So it kind of almost appearing to die, but then coming to life. Um, uh, and the star also appears to be evolving 10 times slower than would be expected. So um, it appears 60 days old when it's actually 600 days old. And apparently that there are very kind of various explanations for all the different elements that make up just how weird it is. 
but there's no explanation for all these things put together. So astronomers still don't really know what's going on with, going on with this star. Um, so yeah, it, it's a great feature as, as he's put together, and she's, she's actually spoken to some of the people who discovered the stars. So if, if kind of stellar oddities are your thing, uh, that's probably the feature for you. And also speaking of stars, Chris, uh, there's, is it, there's a yes. pretty good mission to, to map the Milky Way ongoing. <clears throat> that's right. Um, uh, I was I was just blown away by um, the um, the second data release from the Gaia um, mission, uh, which is ESA's mission to um, map the uh, map our galaxy, the Milky Way, in a whole new kind of level of, of precision. Um, and it's just amazing when you think of some of the numbers. It's mapped over over a billion stars, 1.3 billion stars. And actually, I said three dimensions. It's actually six <laughs> dimensions. When you, If you take dimensions in the kind of fairly loose sense, um, it's actually six dimensions. So it's position, distance, proper motion, brightness, colour and velocity of... And that's not... They don't have a billion stars, all six dimensions. Um, they've got three dimensions for a billion, but you know, millions of stars are, are, are you can you can get six dimension six dimensional view from them. It's just incredible. It is. I mean, I know "awesome" is a devalued word these days, but like <laughs> reading through that feature, it it was awesome. It, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it yeah. really did make your mind go. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. I mean, and it's not just um, stars that this is this is mapped. It, you know, um, over its five years that it's been scanning the sky out in space, it's picked up um, asteroids, exoplanets, quasars, supernovae. Um, you know, so it's done the whole almost every um, area of of astronomy mm. is going to be affected by this, and and it's going to be you know the kind of the go to piece of data for for many years to come for professionals. Equally fascinating was also, I mean, the numbers from out there were amazing, but like mm. some, some of the numbers ahead of people who were working on it down here were amazing as well. So there's yeah, like yeah. number crunching sweatshops all over <laughs> all, all over the globe, <laughs> yes. you know, like, everybody yeah. feverishly working to get yeah. this data, like into some, you know, stop, you know, from 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 raw data to something that means something. Yes, it's like, yeah, it's yeah, amazing yeah. how many it's people are involved, isn't it? And it's quite. Um, because I think one of the one of the really interesting things about the feature is, is it shows you what the what the astronomers are dealing with the the raw data that comes in and it's literally just figures in a spreadsheet, mm. isn't it? And then they've got to actually turn that into something meaningful and and you know kind of make inferences and stuff there. So it's mm. it's fascinating work that they do, yeah. Mm. And and um, on on the um, on the subject of fascinating work, I I talked to. Um, the UK's um, principal investigator um, in the Gaia Data Processing Consortium, who's actually handling this 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 massive this data haul, um, Professor Jerry Gilmore, um, and I talked to him about what Gaia will enable astronomers to do. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Ah, yes, the magnificent Trolley Sourbright Crawler, also known as Trollicus Brightolus. The worm's captivating neon colour makes it an easy gummy prey. Trolley! It's a surprisingly sour, invitingly chewy, staggeringly snackable species, unlike anything else found on this planet. Eat me! Delicious. 
Visit trolley.com to shop now. Trolley, eat me! Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, this is fundamental astronomy. So it underpins everything that we do in astrophysics. And in fact, much more than in astrophysics. There's lots of geophysics and, and fundamental physics as well. Uh, basically because this is the precision geometry on which everything else in the subject depends. So this is there's only one fundamental way to measure distances. That's using parallax. That's the slight angle difference between your two eyes. And everything else just follows from Euclid. I mean, it's as simple as that. When you can measure that little angle, you can measure a distance. If you repeat that angle over time, then you can measure a speed. Uh, and once you know a position and a speed, then you know fundamental properties of objects, you know where they are and how they're moving. And you can deduce all sorts of other bits of physics from them. But without that information we're we're running blind Mm -hmm. so this really runs the whole gamut of of astronomy from planning for space missions to astrophysics to cosmology to studying uh, the orbits of planets and that kind of thing absolutely yes i mean as well as all the astrophysics that is done directly on the Gaia data. Quite literally, every single new mission, big ground-based facilities and, and space missions planned for the next 25 years is based on the Gaia data set. They just, these things they wouldn't work without the Gaia data there. So there are an awful lot of people who had nervous fingers crossed until a week ago. <laughs> so the, the last big uh, major astrometry mission previous to Gaia was Hipparchos in the 1990s. Um, how is Gaia different from that? Well, Hipparchos was a, a pathfinder, as was its name. It was designed to prove the technology that Gaia uses. So it was very small. Uh, and it studied a relatively small number of stars, maybe 100,000 stars to what was better than you could do from the ground, but was only moderate precision. And so uh, compared to 100,000 stars with moderate precision, Gaia's got one and a half billion with a thousand times better precision. So it's it's more than a thousand and mostly more than 10,000 times advance on Hipparchos in every way. And in fact, more bluntly, uh, this really is the first time ever that mankind has opened this window into our into space. We've never before known what space was like in 3D. We've never before known how things moved. Wow, that's, that's pretty impressive, yeah. So Guy began its imaging campaign in 2014, and, it, and it's still ongoing. Um, why is it that Guy's cameras... Um, record each star multiple times. Ah, okay. <clears throat> yeah, the mission uh, will probably continue till about 2024. That's when the spacecraft will run out of fuel. Uh, so all going well, it'll be a 10-year observation cycle. But the reason that we keep scanning the sky time after time uh, is, first of all, that we have to follow the change in angle as the Earth moves around the sun because we use the two ends of Earth's orbit. 
as our two eyes, that angle's different for every star, so we have to do it. And in principle, if you did that for just two years, that would be enough to actually measure. But in fact, stars, as well as being distant from us and having parallax, they also move. They have proper motion, so their own individual motions. So to get enough information to be able to distinguish between proper motion, which is the orbit of a star in the Milky Way, and the parallax, which is, in fact, the orbit of the Earth about the Sun, then you need to observe the star repeatedly. It's also the case that many, possibly essentially all, stars have companions, either another star or planets. And they change and they revolve around each other on all sorts of different timescales. So if you want to find a, a planet that goes around uh, its parent star, uh, what these things that are called hot Jupiters that go around in a couple of months or even less time, then you can see that with just two months of observation. But if you wanted to find Jupiter or Saturn, you're going to have to observe its parent star for 10 years to see the effect of it. So the longer we go on, the more things we can observe, which are new types of things. Gaia's data doesn't just uh, contain information on stars. Its, it's observation will help in the solar system as well. Um, what are the, some of the things it's observed um, closer to home here? Well, this latest data release was just a sampler, uh, massive though it was. And so in there, there's a, a few tens of thousands of, of precision orbits of asteroids. Now, these were a selected subset of the ones. The ones that are easy to process. So they're mostly main, known main belt asteroids. But the orbits of each individual one is about a hundred times better from just two years of Gaia data than it is from the accumulated history of ground-based observations. And pretty soon that will be the case for, for tens of millions of asteroids. So every single one will have its orbit known much better than it's known now. Now that's important or of interest, not only to improve the classification of asteroids into families, uh, but also as the asteroids go close to each other, they slightly perturb the orbit. So we can use those perturbations to weigh the asteroids. They'll get real masses and densities. Therefore, we'll know the physical properties of asteroids themselves. But even more fun than that, because Gaia's out beyond the Earth and looking back, Gaia looks back essentially to the orbit of Venus. Uh, and so we're discovering asteroids that actually live between us and the sun. And normally, you can't see those, of course, because they're by definition, they're up in the daytime, right? So you go out, the daytime sky's bright. You can't see it. Goodness knows what there is in the way of a killer asteroid with a big smoke on its face waiting to take you out. Well, Gaia is going to find those. Uh, and another thing, um, one of the early uses of the Gaia data was the reference frame. So there are NASA spacecraft in the very outer parts of the solar system. In fact, one that went past Pluto and now going out to... Um, New Horizons. Yeah, that's right. And it's going out to uh, try and... In image uh, a very distant asteroid in the solar system. So they've used Gaia data to improve their knowledge of where the, the spacecraft is. Uh, the map, it, it navigates by the stars, so its, its own navigation is improved, but also to improve the orbit of the asteroid, its target. And so just a couple of weeks ago, they had to use the Gaia data because they didn't have enough fuel on for two burns of their rockets to do their fine tuning. And so they waited till they got the Gaia data to do their single-shot orbit improvement to, to get it. So that's already a practical application. What about with um, dark matter? How will Gaia's measurements help determine where that is? We weigh things basically by comparing the way things are distributed in space with how fast they're moving. 
So essentially, if you have a particular distribution, if things are moving slowly, it doesn't take much weight to hold them there. If they're moving fast, it takes a lot more weight to hold them there. So we can do that. That technique was developed by Arab astronomers to weigh the Earth using the height of the atmosphere, actually, a long time ago, clever people. Uh, but it's exactly the same methodology we use today. Uh, so we use stars, and looking at how stars are distributed in the Milky Way, we can weigh different bits of the Milky Way. And so it's, up until now, we've just been able to do one experiment, which tells us uh, how much dark matter there is near the sun, and one other experiment, which tells us the total mass of the Milky Way, neither terribly accurately, actually. Now we can do that experiment in all sorts of different places around the Milky Way. So we can weigh spiral arms, we can weigh different bits of the galaxy. We can look and see if there are some bits of the galaxy that are just much, much heavier than they should be, in which we can say, hey, there's a whole lot of dark matter in there. Uh, and we can, or people have already put a lot of effort into improving determinations of the total mass of the Milky Way using Gaia orbits. It's one of the very popular early uses of Gaia data is to try and weigh the entire Milky Way. So has it, has it come up with a, with a figure then for the weight of the Milky Way? It's not definitive, uh, but it's creeping up. Yep. I mean, the Milky Way's just got about maybe twice as heavy as it was a week ago. <laughs> and is that, um, is, it, is, it, is it kind of conforming to models of how much baryonic matter, standard matter that we can see there is and, the, and how much of this dark hidden matter that there is? Well, it is in part, and it isn't in part. It is in part in the sense that the total mass of the Milky Way um, and, and globally how the dark matter is distributed is starting to look a bit more sensible. There were some pretty strange-looking results based on older data. It's starting to look more sensible. But the other feature that comes with that is the distribution of recent accretion onto the Milky Way, so what, what you see when you look in the outer parts and what you see when you look around the sun. Uh, and that doesn't agree with galaxy formation models at all and never has done actually I think the the Milky Way has always been considered as a one, one in a hundred out rogue by the people who build galaxy models whereas the people like us who observe the Milky Way say well your galaxy model is just wrong isn't it <laughs> uh, and I think that's becoming much clearer is, we have a very great deal still to learn uh, about how galaxies form and evolve and in fact that's the bottom line ambition for the whole Gaia program is to set the Milky Way up as a Rosetta Stone at which we can test everything against it. So not only galaxy formation models, but when we go and look at some fuzzy blob halfway across the universe, we can say, well, that should actually look pretty much like this stage of the Milky Way's evolution. And so then we've got something that we can compare it to. So how much of the Milky Way has Gaia surveyed? Well, the of the one and a half billion stars in the latest catalogue, most of those, maybe one and a quarter billion, are within about uh, four kiloparsecs. So, um, yeah, so, th so that's uh, about um, halfway to the galactic centre from here. And so in a circle like that, so most of those stars are in that bubble, a few thousand light years across. And so that part of the Milky Way is, is studied with great detail. But all the more luminous, intrinsically luminous stars, Gaia can see them all the way out, way beyond the Milky Way, actually. Gaia can actually is, can see individual stars moving in, in the Andromeda Nebula. So as far out as the Milky Way goes, and that's another question that we don't know 
know the answer to yet, but we will probably do in the next few weeks. Uh, what is the most distant star that we can find? Uh, and they're a long way away. They're, they're probably probably the most distant stars that are actually attached to the Milky Way are again about maybe twice as far away as we thought previously. So the Milky Way's just suddenly got six times bigger as well as a bit heavier. And so it, the whole volume is sampled just with more resolution as you get closer to us. So the data release is is just the first stage. And, and like you said, there's already been some interpretations of the data from the scientific community, like the, measuring the mass of the of the Milky Way and seeing which which is the furthest star um, can be can be identified. What what have you found interesting from the kind of of the scientific papers released on, on the Gaia data so far? Well, they're roaring out these papers actually. There were there were twelve of them yesterday morning, twelve research papers just in one one morning. That's not bad. Uh, but they cover everything. <clears throat> so there was one very nice nice little study that looked at the nearest um, failed brown dwarf star as a T-dwarf, technically. So those things may be 10 or 25 times the mass of Jupiter. But it's a free-floating star. It's just it's very close to us, actually. It's going to come very close to us. This is one that's heading towards us. But using the Gaia data, they're able to classify that. So that's the very low luminosity, very nearby thing. Uh, there's in the uh, several papers immediately started looking at the white dwarf sample in Gaia because white dwarfs are intrinsically very luminous. This is the end point of evolution of all normal stars. So it's uh, an Earth-sized diamond crystal, basically. But it turns out there's two types of white dwarfs, and it was always known there were two types. There's not things like our sun will turn into, which is basically a single star evolves into this giant diamond crystal. But in cases where you have two stars, binary stars, very close together, they, the evolution of the star, uh, surviving star is disrupted before it can get to that very late stage. And so they form a lower mass uh, white dwarf, so it's still got lots of helium in it, so it's got a helium white dwarf. And one of the things that came out on day one of the Gaia data is just looking at the intrinsic luminosity and colour of the, the 25,000 white dwarfs. I mean, previously there were only a few hundred known. The accuracy was so great, you could actually see the difference just by eye looking. You can just see a different distribution uh, in the figures of, between the helium white dwarfs and, and the hydrogen white dwarfs. Uh, and so just there, this is the, the tells us the history of the effect of binary stars on the evolution of all stars, bang. I mean, that's that's spectacular. So they're the low luminosity objects, but also, of course, people went up the other extreme uh, and there's a much improved calibration of the cosmological distance scale using Cepheids, the bright, young, luminous, pulsating stars, uh, and also long period variables, that's intermediate mass stars in the very late stages of their evolution where they're huge and they're pulsating irregularly on timescales of up to years. Cepheids, it's days, but it's years. So these things you can see a very long way across the universe and they're the things that calibrate the distance to 1A supernovae and attempt to improve our knowledge of the Hubble constant. <coughs> um, and although the last word won't be out for several years yet, the current uh, calibration of the nearby supernovae from the Gaia distance scale is just interestingly different than what it should have been according to cosmology. So there's a real, uh, you know, there's a three sigma discrepancy between the local universe as measured and the local universe as predicted. And uh, that's really interesting. So we may be learning, maybe about to learn something fundamental about general relativity and the nature of dark energy. Again, you see Gaia is contributing on every scale, dark matter, dark energy, but also to stars, stellar evolution, right down to asteroid orbits. You've been involved with, with Gaia since the very beginning, haven't you? Um, since the early days. Um, how, how do you go about 
starting a mission like this? <laughs> um, actually, it, it's, it seems uh, innocent and easy at the time. Um, you know, you're working on stuff, and this was back in the early 1990s. It was the beginning of the modern digital science astronomy region applying, studying the, the Milky Way. So I was one of the pioneers of that process and was discovering things left, right, and center. And so it was obvious that what you needed, the next step after these big sky surveys, which were just starting, uh, the next step was a, a, a survey in three dimensions, or in six dimensions, actually, by getting speed as well. And so it was an obvious thing to ask for. And in fact, the timing coincidentally was dead right because the Aparkos mission you mentioned was still going, but they already had enough information to know that the, the method was going to work. And so then it was in a rather silly phrase, just technology. Um, and so uh, we wrote a proposal saying we'd quite like a billion dollars of, of technology, please. And uh, eventually got it. <laughs> Just, just a just a casual letter on the, on the, on the right-headed notepaper and that. Well, it just about was actually the original proposal was I think four pages long. I mean, they're very short. And then, of course, you, by the time you've finished, decade later, when you're ready to actually start building the thing, you've got books and books and books of detailed stuff. But it does start with just an ambition. Everything starts with an ambition. And and you stuck with it throughout its kind of development and and throughout its evolution of the mission. Um, are there some parts of a of of a mission that are more that are more challenging than others in terms of seeing it through and keeping the kind of development of it going? Uh, well, yes, I've been I've been uh, leading the UK involvement in this for a quarter of a century now, which is a very long time. So, I mean, the the most challenging thing is to make sure you start when you're young, so that you're still alive a quarter of a century later. That was a bit of clever planning. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, the, the real um, uh, discovery for me and Guy is how clever engineers are, actually. The people, many in the UK, people in Cheltenham who built the sensors, people in uh, Stevenage who built the avionics, people in Toulouse who built the, the structure. They're really clever people. I mean, that's just such fun things they do. They're lucky people. <laughs> so yes, it's yeah. a great, great life they have, great exciting stuff. So it's been a great pleasure to work with uh, engineers and technical people. And the rest of it, it you know, there's a certain interesting, certain intellectual interest in managing large numbers of people, um, but also in the in the science and um, seeing. See, one of the strange things about Guy, just because it's unique, this is the first time we've ever done serious astrometry in space. All the things we said back in the 1990s we wanted to do have not been done in the meantime because there wasn't another mission that tried to do it. And so those same questions we asked in 1995 are the ones that are being answered today. That's, that's remarkable. But normally technology and science advances so fast that you start building a telescope to do something, and in the meantime, I've done it. So you end up doing something else with your telescope. But, but Gaia is unusual in that sense, is that there is nothing else. Gaia is unique. That was Professor Jerry Gilmore. Uh, you can find out more about the Gaia mission and Professor Gilmore's involvement in the June issue of BBC Sky Night magazine. There's lots to see in the night sky this month, which you can find out all about in our guide to the night sky in this month's issue. But if there's one thing you really should see, it's noctilucent clouds. Our June issue features a wealth of information about observing and photographing NLCs, as they're known. But you don't need, really need any fancy equipment to spot them. 
the best time to look for them is about an hour and a half to two hours after sunset, uh, typically look low above the northwest horizon. Or you, if you get up early enough, you can look a similar time before sunrise. That time, look low above the northeast horizon. And these shining clouds are created high up in the in the mes- mesosphere. They're actually the highest altitude clouds in in our atmosphere. Um, and they're created as light shines off ice crystals, producing a really silvery kind of blanket display. They're, they're, they're quite captivating when you see them. And as they're, as they're relatively easy to see, they're a fantastic way of getting um, kids and, and young people looking up at the sky. So that's it from us this month. Uh, you can find out more about the Gaia mission and Noctilucent Clouds in the June issue of BBC Sky Night magazine, in which we also look at some of the top historical astronomical attractions you can visit this summer in the UK, a mission to study Noctilucent Clouds up close and the search for dark matter. Plus, our regular sections helping you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky Night magazine, and until next month, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Fletcher. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or simply head to iTunes. <laughs>